So, uh, all right. So I'm going to hit record. Okay. So we are now recording. So whenever you're ready, go ahead and go. Hi, this is Michelle Gomez from michellemgomez.com. And you're listening to Jeff Smith on Room Room Veer. Well done. Wow. So professional. First try and done. One take. <laughs> Michelle. That's your new name. <laughs> I'm, you know, outside of my business degrees, I actually, there was a moment I wanted to, I thought I wanted to be a news anchor. So I Whoa. actually did go to the Academy of Radio and Television here in uh, Orange County. And I, so I do have a certification in broadcast journalism that I never actually used until You're now. You're using it now. <laughs> and you nailed it. Thank, Thank you. you. I, got, oh, cool. I have to hit stop. I'll be right back. Okay. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith, where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Dr. James Kelly, thank you so much for being on Vroom Vroom Veer. Welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going awesome, Jeff. And thank you so much for having me on the show. The show. Ooh, well, <laughs> thank you. Okay. So uh, you are at uh, crucibles.gift.com. That's your new book. And the cool URL that goes along with that is slash VVV for Vroom Vroom Veer. So talk a little bit about uh, your book and, uh, and how that came to be. Yeah, awesome. So again, thanks for the opportunity. The book was a passion project that came out of two different like verticals. So like one vertical was just life. Sure. We all have, <laughs> yeah, we all know. have that vertical. Yeah, we're living. We, yes. we have. <laughs> we hope. Um, one would hope. And then the other one actually came out of my podcast uh, that I did for three years mm. called Executives After Hours, where I interviewed for the book a at lot. least. 140 different executives. And then mm. similar to you, I, but I took the executives on a journey from their childhood to where they're at mm-hmm. with almost almost never really asking about what they do. My, my tagline was always, I care about who you are, not what you do, because who you are defines what you do. I love that. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I would learn a ton about these different leaders and their life and their journey and habits and just kind of their being uh, as, as an existence. Okay. And so I took those 140 interviews. I transcribed them all. Uh, I didn't. I paid someone to transcribe. Good, it must be good. clear. Yeah. <laughs> um, as a researcher, I know the pain that would be. Mm, so, so someone transcribed them, and then I basically did my whole researchy thing and looked for patterns and trends, kind of coupled with my life. And uh, the book was kind of born out of that. And so, it, you know, I came up with a very simple framework about how to be really a more authentic leader, but I say authentic person, Mm -hmm. but it all really is predicated on your crucible, your adversity moment. And we we can talk about any of this you want, but, but that's kind of the the starting of the framework. It sounds a lot like what Tim Ferriss has done in his last couple books. I don't know if you're following that guy. Yeah. His (laughs) books are like, his books are like basically, uh, Stephen King novels, super thick, super big. Yes. Um, um, I'm sure they're great. They're not super thick and super big. Yeah, I thought you were gonna say, and not super great, by the way. I think it's the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. uh, his his Tim Ferriss is long winded. 
to be fair. He is. Um, uh, okay. I tend, All right. I gotcha. believe in parsimonious. Okay. Being parsimonious. So like, you know, we don't have a lot of time in our society. So my book's 170 pages. Mm. Um, it's short and sharp. But right, I think right. many podcasters around the world have a, a lot of great content. They're just not really sure what to do with it. No, for And sure. how to use it. Oh, yeah. You know, this podcast could someday be a very much like that kind of book. For sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I've got like 170 shows now, right? So yeah. if I had an inkling, I'm sure I could dig out some sort of, you know, transcribable content <laughs> yeah. out of yeah. that, you know, and learn some stuff. I'm sure. I just, you know, said uh, inspiration has not taken me yet. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> a book? That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think that's a fair statement, actually. It's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's one of these things but that... But good for uh, you. Well, you know, it was, it was, I think it's something I set a goal to do when I was 32 or 33. Yeah. And I just I wrote somewhere in some folder that I don't know where it's at. That I, I that I I wrote it in the future tense as if I had done it. And I just okay. kind of said I, I I wrote I think I'm paraphrasing here, but um, I wrote I wrote a book by 43. Mm. And so literally last summer I was in Portugal for the summer with my family. Nice. And they went to the beach every day. I went to the coffee shop every day. And in seven weeks I wrote my book in at wow. 43. Well, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty so, good. It's seven yeah. weeks. So you yeah. had your system down. I did. I had a really interesting system that worked well for me. And I think for many people who like I when I get in front of a typewriter, I start to get paralysis of like trying to be perfect. Right. And, and so what I did is and I can give you this is my week. I'd go like Monday was research day. Tuesday was research day. Wednesday after Wednesday morning was write the outline okay. for the chapter. And the outline would be written in question format. On Wednesday afternoon, my wife would interview me, and because she didn't know the topic, she would ask all the clarifying questions. And then I would take that transcript, hand it in, get it the next morning, and then wordsmith two days on Thursday, Friday, and have a chapter done. Ah, oh, that's that's and that's genius. what I do. Now I could so do all of that. I could do all totally. Of that. Yeah, that's totally the point, right? Like that, I could do. Yeah, and so the conversation. Yeah, I would have to wordsmith like the ums and the buts and. Like stuff didn't make sense, but right. all of the major content was down yeah. and it was down in like a 30 minute conversation. Yeah. I, I've always said like, I could never write a book that would drive me insane, but I could talk a book. No problema. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, and that's just, and it, then right? let like, somebody else type it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and so for many people, right. the barrier is sitting down, you know, for me to, this is a great example for me to do a four paragraph blog post it is a commitment of three to four hours for me mm, wow like i i can't do it fast right, right um but if i was to talk it out i'm done in like i don't know four minutes <laughs> so so there's something oh, you're just talking like, really fast you're just verbal person you're a verbal yeah yeah, yeah. it's a total verbal you prefer you prefer speaking to writing and yeah and I, I think we're we're i can i can again we see eerie parallels between yeah yeah <laughs> similar yeah. people yeah even so, our, our podcast topics are similar so this is a little yeah weird. yeah yes uh so so i'm very proud of the book um it was endorsed by a lot of really uh, heavy hitters in the industry so for for your listeners who may or may not know dr marshall goldsmith has been ranked as like the number one executive coach in the world wow uh bill george who wrote the book true north i've heard uh, of and 
and was former Medtronic CEO. He's also now a Harvard professor, endorsed the book. Jeffrey Hazlett, um, the founder, co-founder of IDEO, Dennis Boyle, a gentleman named John Berghoff, which eventually people will know John because he's just a phenomenal leader. So I, I, had, I had a large amount of people, like probably eight, who who endorsed the book. And so that gives it a little bit of credence. I always throw that out there. If you know who's endorsed it, and you know like they're, they're solid people, then there's some, some credence behind what I'm trying to do. So anyhow. <clears throat> no, I get it. Well, good for you. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I felt like I felt like I was I was like I was trying to do a humble brag, but I don't know if it came across <laughs> that way. They have to make up a word for humble brag. Yeah. <laughs> Brumble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very brumble saying this about me. No, yeah. this this whole thing is about a little bit of shameless self promotion. Have no shame. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Okay, so let's tease now um, because that's what we do. Um, so we're going to say um, later on, we're going to talk about you teaching in English in Japan for a year or so, uh, but mm-hmm. not yet. Uh, and then later on, we're also going to talk about what it's like to move your family to the Middle East and live and yes. work there. So we can swap some stories there because... Um, I did a couple of Air Force deployments to the Middle East, yeah. and I bet you I had a lot more fun than you. No, yeah, no, no. <laughs> maybe once, maybe. but not, not not the second. No, the first one sucked. The second one was fun. Okay, yeah. so before all of that, let's talk a little bit about uh, you growing up. So you grew up in Portland, am I right? Correct. Yeah, okay. yeah. So talk a little bit about yeah life so I, I, as as the youngest of three and a half kids. Yeah. So I'll explain the three and a half in a second. But, you know, I grew up in a, in a what's called Southeast Portland, which is now probably the last area that has any affordable housing in, in Portland. OK. Um, but it was a tiny 900 square foot house with six people. Tiny. We wow, were six people. Yeah. Wow. That is correct. Tiny. OK. We were a, we were a, I would say lower middle income family. OK. You know, definitely didn't have any extra money at the end of the month. Right, um, but I didn't want for anything, so sure. I wasn't spoiled. But I, but there was enough. There was enough for my mom to overspend on food. Okay. Um, but there were no vacations. I went okay. on like three vacations my whole life. Um, so yeah, so we didn't do a lot because we didn't have a lot. Uh, I grew up. What I always like to joke in a Irish Catholic household with the with a touch of violence minus all of the Catholicism. So. <laughs> Yeah, I plus saw all that. The guilt. So I, plus yeah, all the guilt. plus all the guilt, and you didn't have to yeah. go to like uh, weekly mass. No, no, my mom was great at it. Actually, she was fantastic. Wow, at guilting. My mom was awesome at being a martyr and guilt, and luckily I got the martyr martyrism. <laughs> as well, my poor life. Um, so let me ask you this: Did uh, as the youngest of three, did you ever get the belt, as they say, or I did or the slap? I oh, did. good for you. I See, did. I, yeah, I avoided yeah. it as as the youngest of three, mostly. I don't think I yeah. ever got the belt myself. I got. I think I got it. I want to say probably four or five wow. times. Okay. See, that's uh, not bad. I mean, you count a whole childhood. I bet your your older siblings got a lot more than you did. Well, that's just it, right? Like I watched them screw up, and right. I was like, "Well, that sucks." <laughs> exactly. It's like you learn how to be that. sneaky. Yes. Yeah. So you're gonna oh, do the I same beha- thing, but you're gonna get away with it. I learned behaviorally. Yeah, I learned behaviorally by watching them screw up, and I'm like, "Well, that." That didn't seem to work out well for them. So, That's right. That's right. Um, the lesson that you learned was you can do that. You just have to be better at being sneaky. Exactly. Yeah. Just yes. don't get caught. Just don't get caught. 
Yeah, yeah. The uh, lesson here so, is don't get caught. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, and I also grew up in a house. My mom was married at 18, had two kids by 24. Wow. You know, and then met my dad, and then they had me. And then the, the, the half-child, my mom and dad adopted a kid when he started high school. So he lived in our house as well. What that made it to six at that point. Okay. And so and so yeah, he went to our high school to play sports and he ended up living in our house for five years. And you know, his mom was four miles away, but his mom had problems, and so mm. my parents took him in. Okay. Uh, yeah, and so that was kind of the three and a half. And, gotcha. And, you know, um, but I, like every not every, but like most families, um, we're pretty dysfunctional uh, on the whole. I think most so families are too. I yeah. agree. Yes. So I don't talk to either of my siblings. The adopted brother, I talked to several of his kids. Not so much him. He's not really good at communicating. Okay. But, you know, I just kind of, you know, and I was the youngest by five years. So when you're the youngest by five years, it's just really weird space. Because not only are you the youngest, but you're also kind of like an only child. A little. So, yeah, okay. So there's no one to play with. Your older siblings don't want to play with you. Right. And your parents are exhausted because they both worked full time. And they okay. weren't. They weren't active. They weren't in shape. So, so nights were, you know, my mom did great. She made dinner every night, but it was, especially by the time I got to like 12 or 13, it was eat in front of a TV. It mm. was, you know, weekends, we didn't do anything. Uh, and I just remember vividly, vividly as a kid, all the time, my parents didn't entertain me. Like there was no such thing as entertaining your child. Okay. It was go sort yourself out, <laughs> go play by yourself. I, 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 I remember my dad, one of his favorite things to say was, uh, go, why don't you go play tag on the interstate bridge? <laughs> 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 and, and, okay. you know, he was joking and we knew he was joking, but you know, we got the message, get the hell out of the house. You're bothering me. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I got a lot of that. Like, get out of the house, go do your thing. And there were no kids in my neighborhood. So, like, mm, I also had no wow. buddies. So I was just really by myself a lot. And mm, and here's, wow. here's the good thing about that is that I became really good at self-evaluation. Yeah. <laughs> here's the bad thing about and that. And self-entertaining, be- right? Yeah, yeah. And here's the bad thing. I became really good at self-evaluation. So, like, I, I was I could both sides of it. I, could, I can pick my faults. But I nitpick my faults, if that makes sense. Right. And one, you're one overly is deli- critical like, of yourself. Correct. One becomes de- debilitating at the mm. end of the day. Right. Um, it's it's so one it thing one's... to have clarity on you know what you're good at and what you're bad at, but being like overly icky towards yourself is no good either. <laughs> right. Oh, correct. You know, and when your parents don't have good self-esteem. Sure. No, I'm with you. That rubs off on you as the kid. You know. Yeah. Again, I am blessed. My wife came from a family of like a mom who. Who even when they screwed up, she found the good in the screw up. So, oh, wow, yeah. um, she she has tremendous self confidence, and our kids are getting the same thing, mm. and that's really important for me. So, often when I start kind of going back to my days of growing up and doing the Irish Catholic yelling match to figure out who was louder or best, um, <laughs> okay. Uh, as I start to do that, as I'm yelling at them, I say, "Don't look at me for examples of communication. Look at your mom; she's a better example." You know, <laughs> I'm like losing my cool. I'm pointing right. to a better example of how to like treat people and be respectful. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like so, both aspects again, of your childhood are coming to the fore. Correct. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I just grew up in this house, and I grew up playing swimming and water polo because. That's what my brothers did. And so I didn't really have a choice. 
Mm. I mean, I'm sure I had a choice, but I but I felt like I was supposed to do that because they did that. Okay. So so I played sports in college or high school, and I played sports in college, and um, yeah, you know, I didn't have an eventful childhood because we didn't do anything. It was just dysfunctional. We just hung mm. out, and mm. you know, got, um, got in trouble. Uh, my dad, my dad was a military guy, so rules, oh wow, okay. was strict. Yeah. But, um, wow. you know, we he got out of the military, but he was in Vietnam, and his dad was World War II, and. You know, his dad was like more physical dis- than my dad probably was. Yeah, so discipline was, mm-hmm. yeah, it was the very forefront of everything that happened in our house. Um, hold the fork wrong, you get smacked. Whoa. Uh, um, if you uh, said anything back, if you didn't say yes, sir, or no, sir, or yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am, you got smacked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yikes. You know, but I, yeah, it was, it was, and it wasn't like a hard smack, but it was, it was still, um, you know, it, it, it still, it, it, when, when parents do that, and I'm a dad of four, right? When you make your kid feel weak and insignificant, it has a longer term impact than what parents typically think. Mm. You know, every right. time a parent says you're not doing good or you're not doing right, and there's a consequence to it right. that's negative, it only mm. destroys your self confidence. Okay, it doesn't make you feel confident in the moment. And I can't speak. I mean, this is my experience. This is my truth. But this is kind of the lens I look through as I raise my kids. Mm. And um, there's got to be a better way to teach that sort of lesson that because we're all going to I think um, now when I talk about my parents and my you know youngest of three, it's a little bit different. I mm-hmm. think my parents had the laissez faire kind of situation <laughs> going on uh, and they were very entertaining. Uh, I was I was now there was a lot of entertaining of self. You know, there was like, okay, go play with your uh, Legos and get outside and, you know, you know, as long as you don't come back bloody, we're okay. Yeah. (laughs) That was all great childhood for me. And we went camping a lot where, you know, we only drove like about, I don't know, like 30 minutes away from home and, uh, you know, went running around in the woods chasing, you know, like chipmunks with BB guns and things like that. So I had a lot of fun uh, and then my parents were like partying and crazy, but they were very much like not disciplinarians, you know, and I didn't, I never got smacked like for, you know, holding the fork wrong. So that, that wasn't my experience. So it would be, you know, I did have to learn that lesson of that whole, like, sometimes your opinion doesn't matter, idiot. (laughs) You know, it wasn't until years later I was in the military that I learned that lesson. You know, it's like. It's, you know, in certain situations, grownups have to like shut the hell up and color, you know, especially when you got a job, you know, or in college or, you know, and that I don't even, I'm not a parent, so I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just now thinking of that, you know, it's like that's how your mom and dad did it. Not probably the best way. (laughs) Definitely not the best way. Right. Well, but what I always say is that, you know, and I say this to my mom all the time, I'm super transparent with my mom. So I tell her all the time that you, you. You pretty much screwed me up, right? Um, but what I tell her in that same breath is that your intent was never to do so. You did the best that you could with what you knew and the circumstances you're in. So I realize Amen. right, that's true. That 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 you know financially they were stressed out. I mean, there were times where our electricity was turned off. Um, I realize that they both worked, you know, uh, forty to fifty hours a week. I realize that they were, sh- you know, shuttling kids around for sports swim meets, water polo meets, practices. Mm. So I get it that their life wasn't 
uh, easy. Right. <laughs> you know, we didn't we didn't get the person. So, but I only got that obviously in, in retrospect. I don't I didn't get it at the time. At the time, I was a bitter asshole. So, but 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 as, as we do, yes, yeah, yeah. As you mature, right. uh, as my cerebellum some grows, do. some people yeah. don't. Yes, and some people don't. Yeah, some people yeah. hold regret against their parents, and, and maybe sometimes it rightfully so. You know, sure. Um, but my mom tried. You know, she's she was raised in this cold. Uh, you know, English Catholic household where Scottish actually Scottish Catholic where emotions weren't discussed right. and, um, feelings and hugs. Like I knew my mom loved me when she drank a box of wine and she'd come like, <laughs> give me a hug and a kiss. Good night. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, very similar to my experience. Yes. Yeah. I can so, tell this story like, uh, one time I think it was like a new year's Eve thing where my parents went like, to a city far away and for a New Year's Eve party. And they left me home as a teenager. Okay, I don't know if this ever happened to you or not. But um, they were scheduled not to come home that night because, you know, it was a long drive, snow, drinking, right? So they were supposed to stay there and, I, you know, I was going to be home alone. So, of course, I think I had some friends over and we might have had some drinks on our own. That's what we did. Yes, it was illegal and stuff, but whatever. So it's like me and my buddy passed out like at 2 a.m., right? I'm on one couch. He's on another couch. And my mom and dad decide they, they came home. I'm like, oh, well, great. Drinking and driving. Perfect. You know, um, and my wife, not my wife. Woof. Okay, Freud. Um, my mom. She <laughs> that's a big Freud. Yeah, that's a big Freud. <laughs> It's a whole lot of Freud. <laughs> I thought you were going to say sister. That been that's, that's perverse. Yes. Even yeah. better. Um, <clears throat> so my mom comes in and um, she does this thing where she says like, oh my God, I can't believe it. I just took a bunch of aspirin. I'm going to die. And then she says, she looks over and she sees Doug <laughs> on the other couch. And she's like, uh, and, I, and she's like, oh, hi, Doug. And I'm like, mom, don't worry about it. You're not going to die. Just go puke out those aspirins. I don't really think it matters, but it's not going to kill yeah. you. You'll be okay. So um, the, the point of the story was, was it was only allowed for her to have emotions when on a holiday and when she was drunk. Yeah. Right, That's isn't that so the, weird, right? kind of like that the the weird, like Midwestern kind of uh, repressed emotion scenario that we all grew up in? <laughs> yeah. We all need years yeah. and years of therapy. And this Were is you Catholic, also raised Catholic. No, also? I was uh, uh, Lutheran. Okay, all right. It's yeah. all the same. It's all repressive, and it's very yeah. Like, I call Lutheran like Cath- Catholic light. I mean, yeah, you know, it's essentially the same sort of. Yeah. You know, don't don't talk about anything inside your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't be transparent with your emotions. Don't that's tell right. people you love them. I mean, right. that's insane. No crying aloud unless you get yeah. punched and something hurts or something, you know. Maybe yeah. you can, you know, <laughs> right. Okay. So, yeah, we were we were equally screwed up as children. Okay. So, moving on. So, um <laughs> let's talk a little bit about uh, this low academic bar and what your your first college experience was like. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't know how I ever got through college. Um, I don't know how <laughs> I got through high school. Okay. So I graduated high school the two five. Um, wow. But because I played sports, I, um, okay. I, I got into college uh, as a um, as a uh, what's it called um, conditional, and so. I had to take all these like rudimentary courses when I first got there, math and reading and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. 
but as soon as I got there, I mean, I was, I was jumping into 20, 25 hours a week of, of water polo. So right. I had practice in the morning, practice at night, travel on the weekends. I had a job, uh, 10 hours a week, 15 hours a week job um, to make some money. Mm. My, my parents didn't have any. Right. So they couldn't afford to give me spending cash. And so I had to do whatever I could to survive. So needless to say, my first year there was not stellar. It was like 2.0. Mm. And, then I, and then I quit. And I moved back. I went to the University of Dayton in Ohio, uh, and then I quit. And at that time, my parents had moved to Chicago, but I went back to Portland. Uh, and, and I had a girlfriend at the time, a high school girlfriend. And so I was like, "Oh, I'm in love, so I'm gonna go back and see her." And I made all these excuses. Right, right. And then, and then about a year, <laughs> about, about probably six, seven months into being back, <clears throat> I was actually selling cars at a new and used Chevrolet dealership. And, okay. and this is so vivid for me. It was March. Uh, it was a beautiful day, and there was this used car shack where we kind of would go to hide out from the bosses to kill time. <laughs> okay, because right. there's just not stuff to do often. Right. No, I get it. Like the day. All uh, people with jobs know what hiding is about. So yeah, well, it's supposed to be a car lot where mm. the reality is not that many people come in during the day and midweek. No, right, so, right. You're totally bored. Right. Yeah, this is this is ninety ninety five maybe before cell phones even for crazy. correct wow. correct. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm serious. Like there was, I mean, there was nothing, nothing to, to do. do. So, there was no internet for crying. Yeah. Out. yeah, and so I walked into these car shack, and two guys look at me with rolled up dollar bills and white powder on the desk. Oh, jeez. And they're like, "Hey, do you want to do some?" And I just, I mean, it was so vivid for me. I had a flash forward of, you know, an orange jumpsuit behind bars. Or going back to school. Right. And I, I said, wow. I mean, I'm not even kidding. Like, I just saw the two paths. And I, I said, no thanks. I walked out, called my mom, and said, I want to go back to school next year. Dayton. Wow. And so that my parents, yeah, my parents scrambled to figure it out and you know, how to get me back in. So I ended up going back to Dayton. Um, and I spent the next four years at that point back in Dayton. <laughs> so added an extra year to the program, <laughs> but, but halfway through this, you know, my life took kind of a, a veer, if you will. Yes. My dad passed away. Oh no. And so he was 49, uh, when he died and I was wow. 20. Oh my goodness. So, so super young. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was, I think I was going into my junior year that year. That's rough. And as, you can as you can imagine, I mean, that just. No, that's rough. Yeah. It derails quite yeah. significantly. And, and in that derailment that I, that I was doing, sorry, excuse me, you have to reach for something. Um, it, I just struggled. Like I struggled all sorts of ways. I struggled trying to understand what I was doing. I struggled trying to figure out, um, my existence. No one there actually understood me. None of my friends or my roommates got it. I had no one to talk to. So I kind of dove into drinking okay. quite a lot. Right, right. Um, and, and I spent a significant amount of time I went from like a two-day-a-week habit to a four-day-a-week habit. And if there was a holiday like National Walk Your Cat to Work Day, I drank. <laughs> so like, it right. didn't really matter right. for me. Right, right. Um, it was just one of those things that I just did a ton of because – You're no it, longer it, celebrating. You're just uh, self-medicating. I'm just surviving. You're self-medicating. Yeah. yeah. Trying and, you to know, make the pain a, go away. I don't know. I, I don't even know if I, I – I don't know what I felt, honestly. So what I did know is that the only reason why I actually got out of college is I had a girlfriend at the time who I was madly in love with, and she would go to the library and study all the time, and I just felt like I wanted to be near her. Mm, so right. I would just go. So my grades went from like two. I started by the time my senior year getting like 
not that this is stellar, don't get me wrong, like two eights, really close to a 3.01 semester. I was really excited about that. But I, gradu- <laughs> but I graduated with a 2.4 uh, okay. from college. And I didn't, know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Like I had, I had no idea. So I, as I stuck around an extra semester. So I graduated in December. I stuck around the university until uh, May that year. And then I stayed there that whole summer. And then at the end of that summer, I moved up to Chicago because all my roommates were there. And um, lived in Chicago for ten months. Okay. Tried to go get my master's again. Don't know how I got into a master's program at all, um, but I got in. And I was actually <laughs> I was actually studying to become a uh, film producer. Interesting. Uh, the, wow. What yeah, was your was What just, was your undergrad in by the by the time uh, you finished? By the time I was done after four <laughs> majors. <laughs> wow. Um, so I was like undeclared. Uh, math that lasted a semester until I had to do like calculus and I was like, what was I thinking? Yeah. Um, cause I had to study and like that wasn't even going yeah. together. Right. So, uh, math, uh, then it was education and then it was, I ended up a second semester junior year. My advisor was like, you need to have like some sort of major you can get out of here on time with. Mm. And uh, so I ended up graduating with mass communications focused on broadcasting. Oh, wow. Uh, That's yeah, almost which I, appropriate. Yeah, which I never used at all. <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, until I was an adult, until like, you know, 40. Um, so, so I graduated with that and then I went to go like do a film producer. And then I just, you know, all sorts of things were going on. Like my mom had lost her job. And she was in her fifties and she was super depressed because my dad still, um, I was barely getting by in Chicago. I was working like two or three jobs trying to go to school full time. Uh, I I mean, I literally would scrounge for change in our couches to go buy a hamburger that was like a dollar 50. Yeah. You were really floundering at this point. Yeah. And I mean, and this is while you're doing your, uh, your masters. Yeah. I was working towards it. Okay. Uh, and I, and I would even like buy the boxes of instant mashed potato. And that was my, I'm not even kidding. It was my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Wow. Oh my goodness. And I would throw in some tuna, which is not as disgusting as it sounds. Or mashed potatoes I would, and tuna. Okay. Yeah. It's cheap. <laughs> yeah. Or my, my, my go-to meal was mashed potatoes on tortilla. So that was kind of like, that was. I mean, the carb I on carb. I love it. Uh, I, I was struggling. So, yeah. so I go from there and I moved to Portland and I somehow talked my way into a job and I opened the 41st office for this national advertising company that specialized in recruitment advertising. And wow. this, this is no longer really relevant now, but what it used to be is that these were ad, ad agencies that would work with major companies like Nike had one, Adidas, all these guys, and help them create strategies around attracting and recruiting candidates. Wow. And so you place ads in the newspaper and billboards and you do internal re- employee referral programs. And so I opened up their 41st office at four, 24, grossly underqualified, right. no business doing it. Just kind of uh, clusoed your ass into that. <laughs> yeah. Here's how, I, here's how I think I got the job, to be honest with you. The, 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 the regional vice president who was in charge of my region attended my, high, my college for a year, played sports in college. And, and was an old school guy who just thought if you played sports, you had an innate skill set mm. that can be – you can learn all the other stuff. The universal uh, management sort of like criteria. This, right. Yeah, this guy was old school. I mean gotcha. super old school. Um, but you know, 12 months in, I had a complete emotional breakdown. Like I just – Wow. I, I snapped. So 
I remember sitting at my desk, my secretary came in, the admin, and she looked at me and I was as white as a ghost, shaking, had the sweats, and she was like, are you all right? And I go, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Wow. She goes, you might want to take the day off. And so I left. And then, and then shortly thereafter, um, I ended up getting a DUI. Mm. So my I get goodness. a DUI. And uh, again, another vivid story. I'm, I'm going down the road uh, in a 35 going 75. And I hit the S turn of death. And I just come going really fast. And I remember I seeing at the corner of my eye this, this black and white vehicle. And I remember seeing it whip around. And I remember seeing it light up like a Christmas tree. And I remember having two distinct thoughts. Thought one, pull over and take my medicine. Thought two, I was only a quarter of a mile from home. Race him home, get out of my car, get in the house and get away of, of, with the crime of the century. Right. Like, that was, uh, but, okay. But version, version three of that is, was the reality race home, go to get out of my car, get put in handcuffs, get stuffed in the back of the police car while my mom's brand new boyfriend who had just stayed the night for the first time ever comes out in uh, a, a Hanes t-shirt and tidy whiteies. He's in his sixties. Wow. Right? So okay. Gravity's in full effect at this point. <laughs> so, I've got the I'm image. A, okay. Yeah. I worked great. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like I say this and I'm very, 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 uh, clear on this. Mm. Getting the DUI was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Oh, right. Uh, right. That's a good crucible moment. Talk totally. about a, dad, uh, a wake up veer, right? Oh yeah. 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 So I go to this, I had to do an outpatient program. The judge assessed that I was not a huge, uh, delinquent, right? So I had to do an outpatient program where for six months it was I can never remember if it was three or four days a week. So uh, I'll say three and a half days a week. I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> but it was it was three and a half hours a night for six months. Okay. Um, and then it was for six more months. It was once a week for three hours. And then it was a year of therapy. And Wow. And this is you in Portland? A, this is still in Portland, yeah. Wow. Um, That's you kind learn- of enlightened. You, you know, yeah. I think in Michigan, they just put you in jail for six months or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was my first DUI. So I wasn't like a, I didn't have a track record yeah. as a criminal. Um, I get you. But it was, it was really eye opening to see the power of addiction. Mm. It was really eye opening. And you to get sit. therapy too. Wow. Yeah. And it was, and it was really eye opening to sit in a group of men and women and hear how they would concoct lies. And how they would sell the lie in such a way that it was clear they believed it okay. to meet the ends of their of the needs that they wanted to achieve. If that makes sense, right? And right. Right. What What happens in this if you're open to? It, and I had two thoughts going into this, by the way. Two options. One, and I know a lot of people that would do this, and I don't fault them for it. They'd be bitter and pissed that they had to show up and do this. Right. I chose the latter and said, "What can I learn about myself?" What can I learn about life in general in this moment? So you had some and, sort of uh, sense that you wanted to sort of like take some responsibility. Oh, I take total responsibility. Uh, but in the moment. I mean, not yeah. like, like years later after it's been oh, over. No. no, but in the moment you had like this clarity, you know, where you're like, I have really screwed up. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right, you right. Know. How, did I, uh, I, how did I get here? Right. Yeah. And I think that that's something sometimes... Uh, we can talk about this if you want, but, but I think that there, there's a, 
there's sometimes the lack of, of personal accountability in the society we live in right now. Um, totally. And this is probably where I'm probably a bit more on the conservative side is that I, that I do think there should be a social net and all that. And I don't want to get all political, but but I do believe that you need to be personal, personally accountable for the choices that you make. Because right. at the end of the day, you're in charge of those choices nine times out of ten. You're in charge of, of how you react to something. Mm. You're in charge of the choices that you make and the results of those choices. You know, often we want to blame external factors for the outcomes that happen. And yeah, sometimes it does happen. But for the most part, 90% of the time, you're responsible for the way you react. You're responsible for the attitude that you come to an event, to an instance with, and how you, what you want to take out of that instance. It, it's all on you as an individual. So I believe wholeheartedly, and I hope that I'm teaching my kids this, mm. is that the choices that they make have a direct outcome, good or bad, mm. it's theirs. Right. And, you know, you can learn from it and move on because everyone makes mistakes. I mean, that's right. Shoot. I got a thousand of them. So mm. no, but that's so a big, D- that's a big theme uh, in the air force. When you get, when you screw up, especially when like you're young mm-hmm. um, and you know, you're bouncing up against like, you know, the newness of being in the military. Um, <clears throat> you, they're a lot more forgiving, but there's always this lesson of, look, you're young now and we know you're stupid. So we're, we're giving you a break, but later yeah. on, <laughs> so you need to learn this lesson now, right? It's huge. <laughs> that, that you are responsible for this mess. You a hundred percent. Don't yeah. blame anybody and don't whine about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it, you have to own these things. Now, did I, did I take that to heart? On the first time I screwed up? No. No, 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 no. No, it took years. But every time I hit that wall and I got the same uh, output out of the system, right, is no, no, this is on you, buddy. (laughs) I learned that. You know, it's like uh, in the military then later on, you know, they call it the Mia Copa moment. Yeah. The first time when you come in and go, okay, boss, uh, my bad. (laughs) I'm going to fix this and I'm, uh, uh, I apologize to you and your boss and the universe and the United States and the air force and everybody, you know, and it's all, of course it's my fault and I'll fix it immediately. It, it almost becomes this joke later on. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we, you know, what, what I love about that though, is that if we were to extrapolate just this conversation and put it in the general context of just organizations, right. You know, like this, this gets missed in a lot of organizations, and what I think happens is that when someone is personally accountable, sometimes and quite often they get persecuted for it. Right. So like right, when right. they admit fault, then they get judged because they made a mistake. Now, right. why would the person want to admit they made a mistake versus using that mistake and acknowledging and almost rewarding someone for being accountable and transparent? Yes. And, and when you do the opposite of that, you start to create a culture of secrets. Correct. Culture of intimidation. Not and to say that there isn't that in the military too. Uh, so yeah. I've seen well, it, sure. you know, like w- especially in the higher ranks in the officer people, when mm-hmm. you know, like very powerful people have like their name on a thing. It's mm-hmm. they can't they can't fail. It's politically yeah. incorrect at that point to fail. You know what I'm talking about? So that's yeah. like a that's a whole nother thing to me. Because yeah. I was never up there, right? Whenever, I, yeah. whenever I screwed up, I was just like, "Yes, boss, I'm stupid," and and that yeah. was the only thing to say, right? If you said anything yeah. else, it would you were going to be in jail, 
you know, (laughs) but you know, when you, when you become a Colonel or a general, it's the opposite is almost true. So I'm not even blaming them personally. You know, it takes, you're right. I mean, if they say it publicly, they failed, you know, their, their ass is on the line. Whereas yeah. if they just sort of like do the thing, the the puppet dance, blame somebody else, you know, the Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do we get off of that? I don't know. That's that's a yeah. much bigger question. Mm, right. Totally. <laughs> yeah. What you were talking about, it's more of like a cultural thing. Yeah, I just think that I think that. Um, so, I mean, uh, and I don't know when we'll get to this, but, you know, having lived in. Now three different countries as yeah, an adult. Yeah, talk about teaching. Uh, we said we were going to talk about it. Yeah. So talk about your year in Japan because Japan so, is amazing. Yeah, and Japan, I mean, for, for the audience, and, and you know this all too well, it can't be any more culturally dissimilar right. than the U.S. It's amazing, yes. Yeah. So great. So I get off the airplane, and I'm having to squat in a toilet in the airport at the time. <laughs> And I'm like, what the uh, hell did I do? I have to into? take my pants off. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so right. I couldn't read anything. I mm. couldn't. I remember going to the grocery store and buying the wrong foods, mm. um, eating the wrong things. I didn't know what I was eating. It was disgusting. Um, I just remember feeling so out of sort. And and you know, one of the things to talk about in the book is this idea of one of the crucibles that you can have is moving to a new country, like making yourself so uncomfortable Right. It almost forces you to have to be self-reflective of, okay, how can I survive in this mm. and then thrive in this? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, Japan cannot be any more of an example of that. Yeah, because and it's ultimately it, super safe too. Yeah. So it's a great place to go and just have so, your head totally blown. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, right. I slept. I remember I missed the last train of the night. Oh, and, and then you slept this, in one of those coffee houses by the train. Station. No, if I was smart, I would have done that for okay. sure. But I actually slept underneath some stairs. Oh, at an not a good complex. idea. Oof. Yikes! You know, I but I, would, I wasn't even scared about it. Like yeah. I just thought, super safe country. Oh, yeah. I think it was actually like uh, at a business somewhere. I didn't in my head realize I could just go into an internet cafe. I don't know why they didn't actually register mm. for me, mm. but I just I found this. I found a set of stairs. Uh, crawled up underneath it, used my coat as a pillow, and fell asleep for like four hours. Beautiful. And woke up. And but I just thought, the train started at 5 a.m. or something. Correct. Yes. And most countries, you, don't feel, you wouldn't feel comfortable doing that, right? right so right. I just thought, no big deal. Um, and, and taxis were so expensive that I didn't dare take a taxi. No. God, no. Uh, so it was, you know, I think Japan was one of these things that I'll always be fond of, and I want to take my kids there. My, my brought my wife there once. Um, and she was just so overwhelmed with just the sheer, you know, yes. like when people talk about New York, like Times Square, you know, I have to explain to them that in, in Tokyo on, the, I think it's called the Yamanote line that goes around Tokyo, almost <laughs> every single stop, train stop is a Times Square. And right. you get as far off. as like quantity of people, right? People yes. and lights and size and stimulation. Yeah, you're just overstimulated, <laughs> yes, like yes, I know. paralyzed. So yeah, and um, and they have this weird. The Japanese people have uh, there so many of them in such close quarters that their personal space zone is tiny relative yeah. to Americans, and that's what weird. Walking around with my wife at, all the time, you know, it's like I, yeah. I just kind of like hang back. And let yeah. her do her thing because it's just like, I can't do it, honey. I can't do it. She's just like bobbing and weaving and like 
you know, people are giving her looks, and I'm like, okay, you go. I'll catch up later. <laughs> you know, one, one of the things, and I don't know if you've heard me do it here, and I've kept this habit. And I lived in Japan in 2003, and mm. I kept this habit. So when I'm talking, to, or someone's talking to me, and I know you're going to laugh when I do this, but when I, when I, when I first went there, I, I was like, what, what the hell are they doing? And when I would talk, they would go, mm, 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 mm. Oh, I do mm. it all the time. Yeah, I yeah. do it on the show. And now I, mm. Yeah, and I do it too all the time now. As a it way works, to like though. Give, to it, give affirmation to the right. other person that you're listening. Right. Uh, but it but it was so funny when I when I started doing it here. People were like, "What are you doing?" Mm. You know. But I remember <laughs> when I came back, I went to go visit my brother in Connecticut, and he has seven kids. And his and at the time, his daughter was probably like 13. And uh, I was sitting down at dinner, and I I was so used. The talking at a certain speed, and so when I sat down, I, I started talking. And they said, "Oh, hi, Uncle Jim. You know, how's Japan?" And I'd go, "Japan is good. I <laughs> like living in Japan. I'm having a good time." <laughs> and also, they just look at me like, "What's wrong? Do you stupid. have brain damage?" Like, what you? <laughs> yeah, he goes, like, We're "Not stupid. What are you doing?" I'm like, mm. what do you mean? You're talking ridiculous. And I didn't realize I changed my whole pattern of speech. Wow. Which is one of the patterns you do when you go live in another country. Yeah, yeah. Is that start to embrace the culture. You actually change the way you talk. Yeah. Um, I remember when I lived in Australia, they tend to finish a lot of their words on an up. So how are you doing? Where are you going? Did you go to the bar today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The rising intonation. Yes. Correct. And when I would call people back in the States, they would notice, hey, you're kind of starting to get an accent or at least talk totally differently. And you don't mean to, but right. you just kind of start to take in that culture. That totally gets uh, and, me in trouble, dude. That, that, yeah. what you're talking about? Like when I talk to like a, a British person, I start, you know, like, because I lived in England for three years. So then I start doing a British accent by mistake, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or like I've got friends from Australia and I really like the way New Zealanders sound. Um, yeah. And it's not necessarily, it's just like certain sounds of words just really tickle me and I'll just giggle. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, that was neat, you know? Um, but yeah, that, that sort of thing gets me in trouble. Oh, and the other thing that I wanted to say is, um, so my wife being Japanese, when, when I don't acknowledge things that she said, that I mean, you know, sometimes she'll be just saying things in the car, right? That yeah. if if she were an American telling me a thing that I I didn't really have a comment on, I could just like sort of like go, mm, I heard that, right? And just yeah. continue driving. <laughs> That's not yeah. acceptable to a Japanese person. They'll say it again. <laughs> why, yeah. did, why did you say that again? You didn't say anything back. I'm like, oh, okay. Not a hold on. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yeah. That Japanese thing about it's basically like they're having a, a CB conversation, right? Uh. So it's like, it's like, hey, what's going on? Over. <laughs> yeah. you, you know what I remember? This is so funny. I remember I was dating a Japanese girl. And one of the things I love about at least the Japanese people I came in contact with is the ability to really forget about the past. Like whatever happened, happened, move on. Right. You know, it's yes, a very that's Buddhist true. philosophy. Yes. And I, I remember I got in a fight with my Japanese girlfriend. And we, I, forget, I was drinking. We were karaoke. It's what you do there. Yeah. Um, Good times. And we got, we got in a fight. And 
I started, I started kind of reverting to my childhood anger and <laughs> I was like yelling at her and then she was apologizing and then I was getting mad. Cause I'm like, why are you apologizing? You should be getting mad at me. And she's like, why would I be mad at you? It happened two days ago. It's over with. I was like, what do you mean? And you're over it. And like, it was this big cycle of like cultures clashing <laughs> in, a, in a moment of like rage for me Wow. and yeah. like Buddhist calm for her. And then she's like, well, I don't understand. Okay, well, I'm sorry for whatever I did. And then I was like, well, you did it two days ago. She's like, yeah, it was two days ago. I don't really think about it. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't think about it? It just happened. And there was like this huge cycle. And I remember after we obviously stopped dating, really appreciating that about their culture. That right. whatever was, was. Yes. And whatever is, is going to be. Or whatever could be, could be. But whatever yeah, yeah. is, is in the moment. Right. Uh, and I just so appreciate that ability to just be – in the now, mm. um, where I think sometimes in the U S you know, we either lament the past too much to define the future or we're so far in the future. We miss what's happening now. Yeah. Um, you know, like my wife is, a, is she's a, a very closer to, you know, in the moment she's, you know, if she's not, if, if I like touch her wrong, you know, because she was in a car accident recently. So mm. I'm giving her massage a lot. And the massage that I'm giving her is like trigger point therapy. Yeah. It's not supposed to feel good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And she knows this, right? But sometimes I'll overdo it and she'll be like, stop it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And get a little pissed, you know? And I'll be like, yeah. okay, okay. I'll go get the ice, you know? Yeah. And it's over. You know, it's, the, the, the burst is gone. You know, they, yeah. they're like that. Yeah. Very much. Yeah, so. I love that. Mm. I love about that culture. So let's talk a little bit about uh, you moving to the Middle East because that's crazy. I mean, not only yeah. you, you bring your four kids. Is that did I get that right? Yeah, yeah you got that correct. Wow, four kids, yeah. and yeah. you're living in the UAE, somewhere close to Dubai and Abu Dhabi. So correct. talk a little bit about that's crazy. I mean, yeah. I can I can talk about my experiences, but like, wow, probably totally different. Yes. Uh, in context, <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, here's the thing, though, kind of just a couple quick points, not to go not going too far far back, but. Somehow, by the grace of whatever higher power there is, I end up getting, going to Australia and getting a PhD. Um, right. I and, forgot. And, I skipped over that. No, part. Sorry no don't that. worry about it. Don't worry about it. Um, listen, my life is so varied. Like, to touch every point is impossible. But it's important in context of why I got to the Middle East. Okay. And so, you know, I, I end up getting a PhD in international consumer behavior, uh, a, a pretty – it's a top 100 university in the world. Again, I don't know how the hell I got into that school. I don't know who I had to con, um, but I got in, and that's kind of always been my 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 model. No, I, is just, hey, it's 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 eerie that this yeah. you're you're your ass through your life too, and me too. So yeah. it's like this this sort of like really it's me and I'm here and this has happened, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I have a philosophy like if you want something bad enough, yeah. Um, and this is I've always had this personality. I I, I term it pleasantly persistent. Okay. So I I called every week for almost six months to the university about whether I got in or not, <laughs> and 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 the admins were so annoyed with me. But I'd always say with a smile, and I'd always say like, I know that you're really busy, and so it's just easier for me to call. And when I finally got in, I sent them all a bouquet of flowers. Perfect. Um, saying thank you. Mm. And uh, so when I got there, they just loved me. You know, <laughs> they were annoyed with me, but they loved me because I was like I was, I was transparent about it. Like, listen, this is more important to me than it is you. Mm. So if I keep my name in the mix, you guys will think, okay, he really does want to be here. So anyhow, right. so I got my PhD. We moved to Philadelphia, um, and I was in Philadelphia for seven years. 
I did not get tenure at my at my university for various reasons. And so one of my so really close friends. So you're teaching in Philadelphia. Correct. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. So I'm teaching at teaching marketing at a university. Gotcha. In in Philadelphia. And and so what happens is that I don't get tenure because I have the attention span of a gnat, which also seems to be one of your traits that I have in common with yes, you. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so I was always like teaching, but then I was off trying to like start a business or start a podcast or right. you know do consulting. But it wasn't. I wasn't treating academia as my main job. I, I treated it as the income that allowed me to do the things I wanted to do. Understood. Okay. Um, and they don't like and, that so much. Yeah. They did not <laughs> love that. And I was really transparent about it, which okay. again, one of my greatest and worst traits, I think. Uh, and so when I didn't get tenure, one of my really close friends from my PhD program was teaching at a university called United Arab Emirates University in Elaine, which is again, an hour and a half Southeast of Dubai and an hour and a half East of Abu Dhabi, right next to the Oman border. It's known as the Garden City. It's very green, ironically enough. And and so I moved there two years ago with my wife and our four kids. All four of them are under 10. Wow. So 10, 8, 10, 8 5, and 3. Mm. And, and they're going to one of those you know, like international schools? Correct. They're at a British school right now. Right. And, and, you know, this, and I moved there for two reasons, really. One, it was just an opportunity um, to live abroad because I love living abroad. It's awesome. And, it's it's and the most two, fun. It is the most fun, I think. And I think mm. it's the most enlightening to give you a different yeah. perspective. It's like every day is like feels adventure-y without – it's the mundane has like this magic sparkle. <laughs> you know? It does, but like yeah. any place, once you get used to it – Right, it wears becomes, off, but still correct. you're in – The newness, the new the shiny newness, smell right. of like a car. Right. You have the same thing when you move to a new city, a new – a new country. And, and the second reason why I went there is that I thought I already saw my son at the time who was eight. His friends were giving him opinions about other cultures that their parents had no business knowing about or right. having an opinion for. <clears throat> right. They, ju- they just made some assumptions. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the particular assumptions was that, that you know, uh, people of different faiths, uh, particularly Muslim faiths, were these negative, horrible people. And I just right. I just thought to me it was really important that like every faith and culture and race, there are good and bad people. Of course. And that I wanted my kids to get the experience to form their own opinions about different races, colors, and creeds. So, you know, my my son and daughter, and now next year my other son, will be going to a school where in their class they will be what are called Emiratis, which is the local culture. They'll be Jordanians, Egyptians, South Koreans, English, Irish. Um, South Africans, uh, maybe an American, who knows? But but a <laughs> hodgepodge of cultures. Yeah, which is great. And yeah, and w- and whether they know it or not, when we come back next year or the year after, they are going to have a totally different perspective on human beings and right. on people and and on cultures that they wouldn't have otherwise. They wouldn't have experienced it the same way. And it's not a it's not a I have to be careful because I don't want people to think I'm coming across as arrogant. It's not a statement versus anyone else's choices. Right. These are the choices that I thought were best for my family. Right. And that I thought would make my children more aware. You know, we, right. More we culturally do, aware. It's not like it's going to be idyllic. It's going to be kind of messy, just like everybody yeah. else's is. But mm. it's definitely going to be more diversity forward. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that you know, in, in, a, in a society and in a country right now where 
I think diversity seems like it's being frowned upon. A little bit. Um, Maybe too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I find it unrealistic. <clears throat> I find that usually when people have a fear of diversity or, that, or don't like diversity, they have a fear of being the minority. And, right. you know, when I was in Japan, I don't know if you experienced this or not, but I would sit down on the train and Japanese would get up and walk away from me. Okay. Wow. Really? And yeah, especially older Japanese. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. I, I've, I've gotten a little bit of that. And it so depends like, on where was, you are too. So, yeah. And I, and I can't recall any of that, but I just remember right. sitting down and having the person look at me, sneer, get up and walk away. Wow. Okay. Thinking just a microcosm of how other people and other uh, colors and creeds might feel in America mm. by those moments. Yeah, I guess I did have those moments. Yeah. You know, where where they they give you that Ugh, gaijin. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. That that look. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or you can't um, come in here. Uh, this is Japanese only. Yes, correct. that happens. Sure, of course. Correct. Yeah. And so to experience that, how valuable is that? Oh yeah. You know, oh yeah. In the middle in the Middle East. What we experience quite clearly is that um, the Emirati culture is on top of the food chain right. and everybody else is underneath. Right. And so you see that in certain behaviors and actions and comments and, and, and beliefs that they have. Mm. You know, my right. kids, my oldest two go to – they're in classes with what actual – I'm not kidding – Actual princes and uh, princes, princesses wow. and princes. So shakes and shakas is what they're called there. Wow. But in classes with future royalty. Jeez. And so that's neat. They, they go to these houses for parties and they see what real wealth is. I mean, crazy wealth. The, yeah. Like these shakes have like billions of dollars wealth. Like they're, right. they're money out of every, every, coming out of every orifices possible. Like just, it's a, <laughs> Yeah, um, but also, I wonder, do they get like the thing that uh, you're probably picking up on this, but when I was in, uh, I didn't really get to see much of anything in Saudi Arabia because I was on lockdown <laughs> for 59 days. But when yeah, I yeah. was in Doha in Qatar, uh, I got to go out and, you know, hang out in the mall. And then uh, a, a, a coworker of mine, he was a Marine major, had to have emergency root canal. And that takes like. I think it was like three or more dentist visits out in the world, out in the economy, right? Yeah. And that was like my window into the Middle Eastern kind of cultural world, those are a couple, <laughs> a couple of dental visits, right? Because yeah. all the professionals were imported, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. I was like, okay, what's going on here? And then it's like, all right, this is the idea of the single commodity economy. Right. Well, I, they don't well, have professionals in that are you know organically grown in these countries. <laughs> no. so they have to import them. Right. A, they're small. Right. Uh, usually, B, they are not uh, educated or not driven to be educated because. Right. And when people lament about any conversation about the U.S. becoming a socialist country, I would beg them to go live someplace else because <laughs> we are so far from that. Right. You know, it's in, not going to happen in, in the UAE. The, the government really does give a nice healthy stipend to their to their to their population and many of them work for the government and, and have a nice paycheck right and they know they're gonna get a job in the government so they don't actually work hard at all right um, they don't have any motivation now at my university it's eight thousand students 
and 2000, 2000 of them are boys, 6,000 of them are girls or ladies. Okay. So, so I teach predominantly women mm. every semester. Um, I will tell you the women are very driven, very focused. There are some cultural barriers in place, but, but for the most part, they want to get their independence and, and, and they can make a lot of their own choices for sure. And I think we, it's also mixed between religion and culture. So the religion isn't the issue. It's the culture. There's a difference there. Right. The culture beds them to act and behave a certain way. The religion is just the context we put on everything typically mm. as a Western perspective. Mm. Uh, but, but culturally, they're very family-bound, they're very traditional-esque uh, in how they live their life and how they dress and how they act. Right. But educationally, they're 21st century. You know, okay. They're very driven. Mm. Um, they, my, my best students are almost always the women, uh, by far. And so are they, and like, motivated to, like, get some sort of uh, educational opportunity to, to help them maybe leave? <laughs> no, is that no, is that of, what they're motivated to do? No, or, no? most of them okay. don't want to leave. They want to explore and they love to travel. Okay, but but they have they have it really good in their country. So right, you know this is why you don't see an uprising there. You see an uprising <laughs> in Egypt or Jordan, right? Because um, people you know, don't have it really good. Yeah, they don't have enough money in the government coffers to to help quell that. Mm. So in Saudi Arabia, you know they've been able to over the years quell any type of up, uprising because of the fact that they had a ton of oil money. They could suppress, give a lot of social help, right. so forth and so on. Just pay the bills. That, right. Correct. But they're a population of 35 million. In the UAE, they're a population of just Emiratis, like 1.5, 1.7 million. Oh, wow. But the total, the total country is 9.5 million. Wow. So that tells you how many expats are there. So, right, right. So they've kind of, they've, humstr- they've hamstrung themselves from the standpoint of, the Emiratis will never be able to run the country on the whole in terms of like the business sector. Right. Um, because they, they, there's not enough, not enough. They're, they're importing they all of their uh, intellectual Correct. capital. <laughs> intellectual, they're not only intellectual, but labor. Labor, um, right, right. Everything. Yeah. Everything is imported. And so their philosophy, right or wrong, is that they can just pay to get people to do what they need to get done. Sure. Uh, for now, the, <laughs> yes, the government, the government does realize that, that, uh, the people at the very top realize that can't go on forever. It's not sustainable. Right. And they're really trying to shift their economy cre- off of just oil basically. Yeah. And they're pretty, they're pretty ahead of the game on that compared to some of the other, uh, Middle Eastern countries. Right. But, but what they realize is that it's going to take a generation and, they they're going to have a lot of problems doing it because they're changing some of their systems and taxes and and regulations to actually impact the expats to help benefit the locals to get jobs in private sector. Well, that's good. But the private sectors but the private sectors don't actually want to hire them because they don't work very hard. So <laughs> that'll so take two a Emiratis. While. Yeah, that'll take two, a while. Usually two Emiratis is the equivalent of one expat. Wow. Right. So, Right, right. Because they're just, so, they can't be bothered. Uh, <laughs> what, what are you going to do to me if I don't show up, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah. I, you know, here's the thing about that. So I, so I want to be fair. Uh, I have the same conversation about millennials in the workplace. Mm. You, can't, you can't blame the people if, no. if the social construct they were raised in defines their behavior. Right. If that makes sense. So, no, I get it. You know, often yeah. people talk about millennials 
in the, in the workplace saying, oh, they need a lot of affirmation and attaboys and, and check-ins and so forth and so on and blah, blah, blah. But the argument is that they grew up in a time where they got that automatically. Right. So right, right, right. If, yeah. what, if their social construct was always a like, a love, a share, that's what they know for affirmation, then of course when they start a new job, when they're 22, 23, that's the social construct they know. But I guarantee you by 28, they will move off of that social construct and into a new social construct that has been formed about the norms of the business environment. Yeah. And so instead of us like lamenting the fact that they have a voice and they want to share, we should be embracing that more from the standpoint of that. That's the world they were raised in. And they will conform to the norms of the environment in their terms that meet the needs of the organization as well as their own needs. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it does. Uh, but I, you know, I think from our perspective, I consider myself a Gen Xer. It's great. You know, I get it. Why there's a bit of a, a, a clash, you know, because we came yeah. from the shut up and color kind of uh, school of thought. Um, mm. And you know, they didn't. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so now maybe those shut up and color uh, sort of moments are, don't happen anymore kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, I, I haven't been working in a while, so, you know, (laughs) fair, 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 fair. Anyway, this has been a blast. So let's talk uh, before we wrap, uh, let's talk a little bit more about, um, how to get in touch with Dr. One each James Kelly, um, the crucible dot the crucibles gift.com and then slash VVV. So talk awesome. a little bit more about how best to get in touch with you. So you can go to that website uh, that you suggested, thecruciblesgift.com forward slash VVV. Uh, you can also just go to Dr. James Kelly. They all go to the same place. They all Roger point that. the same direction. Yep. Um, and it's drjameskelly.com. Right. Um, on my website, I give away the first chapter of my book for free, so you can test drive the book. Nice. Uh, just click on the button. And then uh, later this week, I'll actually have – uh, I don't know when this comes out. So by the time this comes out, this probably will be up, is that I'll also have another tab on my toolbar that will allow you to actually get an, a snippet of a course or a worksheet that I am creating to kind of give you a sense of what you would get if you were to pay for the full course down the road. And this is all based on the framework from the book that is really simple. It's you know, it's it's kind of like if you think of a bullseye, it's crucible in the middle. So embrace your crucible. If you move out one layer, it, it only helps if you embrace your crucible that you uh, become more self-aware and at the same time have a growth mindset. If you don't have a growth mindset, nothing else really matters because you're going to be stuck in the same world that you're in. Mm. But, but people who and leaders that I interviewed who embraced their crucible, developed their self-awareness, they only did so because they had a growth mindset. And what happens from that, if you move one layer out on this bullseye, is that this, this last layer is kind of divided into three. And leaders that really got it, you know, and in, I don't even want to say leaders, people, individuals. Right. Yeah. Because uh, anyone's a leader. You don't need to be a CEO to be a leader, right? Right. Uh, so, so, so people that got it would say, okay, I had a crucible moment, dad's death, bankruptcy, divorce, whatever. And I have a growth mindset, which means I'm going to develop my self-awareness. Then that also means I'm going to become more compassionate for people who've been through what I've been through. Or I'm going to actually live with more integrity because that person who was dishonest to me in my adversity moment actually just crushed me. And I think that being transparent and honest is really important. And the last thing that I realized is that they also valued relationships much more. But it all starts with the idea of having your crucible and a growth mindset. And without that growth mindset, nothing else really mattered. You know, I interviewed some people who were in their 70s, been leaders their whole life. And when you ask them what they would do different, they said nothing 
that tells me they don't really have a growth mindset. That tells me that they just kind of went upon their merry path and life was hunky-dory, but we all have things that we would like to do different or mm. at least learn from. And so the right. leaders that really I loved were like, yeah, I screwed up here, here, and here, but it was awesome because I learned from it and I made a change and did X, Y, and Z different down the road. Totally. That's and the so, right answer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, there, there's that Star Trek moment, right? Where you start pulling the threads of your life apart. Who would you be? Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. but no, you're right. I mean, I think it's, it's important. Uh, first off, I want to wrap up there with, yeah. we're all going to have crucibles, right? Mm. That you can't avoid that. You're all going to have a veer. That's what I like to say, right? Yeah, totally. They're coming. They're, they're, they're coming and they're, there's no way of, to avoid those. But I think the, the key feature here is you need those, you know, that self-awareness for sure, that growth mm -hmm. mindset for sure. And that is going to, what makes that a gift because yeah. most people, when they say crucible's gift, they go, okay, he's being cute, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which you are, but I get it. Yeah. And I wanted to just bring that home a little bit. Yeah. It's not a gift. If you don't, you know, I, I, I that's kind of like where this show came from. That, that was mm. the idea. Your crucible's gift is, uh, the whole idea of rooming and veering. It's like my, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever heard this quote from, um, Mel Brooks, it's like, you got to have a message. Message is great. Never let them have you. Never, never <laughs> let them know you have a message. It's kind of like my tricky subconscious sneak under the radar way of, of, of saying what you just said <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> while laughing and trying to be entertaining. Yeah. So well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This has been a blast. Awesome. All right. So you had, wow, we talked a, a lot longer than we were supposed to. I, I apologize. No, it's all right. All right. I talk a lot. Yeah, me too. Jeff, Jeff, thank you for your time, energy, and willingness to let me let me come on Room Room Veer. Yes. Thank you, James Kelly. This has been a blast. Have a good one. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double -E E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer. Vroom Vroom Veer.